The party leaves Outpost 9 and heads southeast down into the Gromengast Swamp. They're in pursuit of Agoramaya, a hag who has taken possession of the Balnexicon, a dread and ancient tome of arcane power that Calda has come to retrieve. Outpost 9 is in dire straits. Food and supplies are extremely scarce, but the party is able to secure a pack animal, food and water for the journey, and they head out. But this has proven to be a critical error that will come to haunt them later on when they're in the swamps. Mir, a native of those swamps, knows how to navigate his way through, knows how to avoid the most dangerous denizens within. However, he's never moved through there with something as succulent as a donkey before. And so they draw the attention of predators, and to avoid the more nastier ones, were-rats, he's forced to take a turn into an area of the swamp where one of its most deadly denizens resides, a giant crocodile. And in the ensuing battle, one of the companions falls and journeys to the gates of death. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. The last session began at Outpost 9, which, as I mentioned in the introduction, is really beginning to deteriorate following the Kraken attack. It has cut off shipping and therefore cut off a major area of commerce, as well as general supplies coming into the outpost. We began the session with a bifurcated scene. The party is split. I decided that they were split, and I started in the middle of these two scenes based on some player input. But Calda, the tiefling wizard, and Bren, the half-orc fighter, are going to see House Dejani. The way I set this up is that Bren had contacts within House Dejani, which is a very wealthy house within the outpost. And this is where Calda's old master, Riziki, was being held. Calda wasn't able to gain access. They were attempting to hold him at bay and not allow him in. But Bren knows the mercenaries who were, who were running security for House Dejani. And so the two of them were necessary to go in. Bren to gain the access, Calda to actually speak with his old master, Riziki, and navigate his way through the, the politics that they would find within the house. The other uh, three members of the, of the party were meeting with a, uh, an underground merchant who would be able to sell them uh, goods off the open market and potentially get their hands on carts or animals or something to help transport things. And so I, instead of running two separate scenes in full, I ran them together. In other words, I bounced back and forth. And I did this because I did not want any of the players sitting around doing nothing, waiting for half hour, 45 minutes while one group was, was talking. This seemed to serve that purpose. It's not perfect, especially when the scenes are don't have a dramatic resonance with each other. They're they're sort of unconnected, but it's better than people sitting around. I would say the scene with the the underground merchant was uh, passable. 
It did not have a particularly high level of, of drama. The roles on the party side for negotiating went well. They got uh, a good price for their brandy casks, which is what they were using to trade for food and a, and a donkey and some carts. But at the same time, the uh, the scene at House Dijani was uh, appropriately creepy. The, the, the Dijani are war merchants, and they're run by the mother of the house and her eldest son, and there's real creepy mother-son dynamic going on there. They were able to see Riziki, but he's virtually non-responsive. And the, the culmination of this was basically nothing that Riziki would continue to stay at House Dijani. I think Calda was really angling to try to bring the old wizard with them, uh, which I wasn't really expecting. In the end, uh, the man was completely unfit for travel, and Calda uh, saw that and decided to just not press the point, and they left. It was a pair of scenes that were necessary in order to just check the box on a couple of things the players really wanted to uh, address before they they decided to leave and head to the to the swamps and ultimately in pursuit of the Bal Nexicon. The second part of the session was on the road, and that's comprised of two overall encounters. The first was a very generic goblin attack specifically along a, a rocky road where there were cliffs high above and a fall off down below. And these goblins repelled down in front of and behind the party in an attempt to, to catch them in a pincer move. And it was extremely, <laughs> extremely normal other than the repelling. It was it was almost like a palate cleanser. They of course mopped the floor with uh, with the goblins, despite trying to give them something of a tactical advantage. I think Mir was the only one who took real damage. The dice were hot against him, and he got hit by multiple arrows. But other than that, it was really a chance for the party to um, decimate uh, a foe. I had hoped to give it a little more character and personality and maybe even make it somewhat comedic for some reason that just wasn't really coming off and i think it was uh probably the most generic combat encounter that the party has faced throughout the entire campaign sometimes that's okay though after that they had a, a night's rest before heading into the swamp Mir is familiar with the swamps and so gives them a lot of advantage on moving through. But the presence of the donkey I determined would really draw a lot of attention from various predators and hunter creatures within the swamp itself. And as a result, they I put them in an odd position where Mir had to pick to either go into a zone where there would be were-rats or go into another zone where there is a rather large and dangerous creature known to reside, this, this old, old crocodile. He didn't want to go up against a, a bunch of were-rats, and I think in the end that was probably a really good decision, but they were forced to fight a giant crocodile, which is actually a huge creature and quite a challenging encounter for a second-level party. While going up against the crocodile, they were faring pretty well, and then at one point called a panicked and ran but ran right into this crocodile's prepared and ready to attack. And in one foul bite, he went from being totally fine to being significantly below zero hit points, and then later would fail his death save. The party was able to defeat the crocodile in, in what I thought was a, a pretty intense battle, because they knew at any point the, the crocodile, if it got any one of them, could do enough damage to potentially take any of them out almost in one bite, which makes this 
this a, a, a really dangerous encounter and also makes me kind of laugh whenever I see posts online about people who are struggling with 5th edition to make encounters more dangerous. Reading that scratching my head going, well, just make them more dangerous, right? You have to add things that have significant uh, CRs above the party level in order to make something as desperate as this. I'm not advocating that this is fair. It certainly isn't. But no one ever said that D&D was supposed to be fair. You give them choices. They make their choices and then they have to deal with it. And putting the, a party like this into a battle like this ups the ante and changes the overall dynamic from we're, we're fighting in fair and balanced encounters to having to think a little bit out of the box and be a little more cautious about how they proceed. Called a role-playing the character's level of panic, ran... I think believing he could get attacked, but probably not thinking that the crocodile could do that much damage. And so he went down and per the rules of my campaign, only gets one death saving throw. And if it is failed, they have to face the gates of death. Calda failed, and this was right at the end of the session. And the last part of the game was Calda in this dreamy realm where he sees his master Riziki sit up from the bed that he had Benin in the, the Johnny house. This is all at the, the quote-unquote gates of death. And Riziki says to him, I've been waiting for you. Why have you taken so long? He's very coherent, unlike Riziki is in real life. And he says, I need to finally tell you everything that's been really going on. Something to that effect. Something dramatic. And I, I think it was something that was weighing on Calda's player. He wanted to understand the mystery of why this powerful wizard was semi-catatonic. Why they had, looks like, slaughtered a whole bunch of people in their, their room at the inn. And what... What's, what's the story behind all of this? And I just kind of dangled that carrot out at the last moment, and that was the cliffhanger ending for our last session. So the first thing that I, I thought worked pretty well, based on, you know, hey, I'm trying to achieve a certain thing, was the creepiness of, of the mother and son in House Dijani. The players got it immediately. There was a visceral, visceral reaction when the mother came, sort of walked up behind the son sitting in the, in the study chair and, and touched him in a way that is a little inappropriate. The the movement through House Dijani, I made their symbol two crossed battle axes, and I did that specifically to engage Joe, who's playing Bren the half-orc fighter who uses battle axes, and it that too worked. These little kind of details that bring this house to, to life a little bit more. It all, That also stands as an interesting contrast to the uh, feminine and effete tonality of the two personalities they meet within the house, right? The, the, the elder son is not some big tough guy who you would imagine wielding a battle axe and yet the sigil of his house are two crossed battle axes and Bren surmises rightly so that this is a house whose economics is based on war and selling weapons. That's something which may or may not pay off in future. I have a couple of ideas should they come back to the outpost and deal with the houses on what they're going to be doing there and what I think worked is I introduced these two basic simple uh, facts about the house that help them to pop out from the background and hopefully uh, sit them in the, the imaginations of the players. I think the pairing of the, the different players so that it was Calda and Bren, as well as uh, Constantine, Mir, and Voss on the other grouping, it was, it was sort of breaking up 
the the group into ways that they normally wouldn't split off. It helped because I think it also introduced some some good role playing interactions between Bren and Calda, and hopefully starts to to build this into more of a cohesive team that has motivation for working together. The the crocodile attack was a good combat. I think a crocodile is a a, a giant crocodile is like a CR five versus a second level party of five members. You know, rules is written that's like suicide, but it wasn't even close to suicide. I mean, I know one of the players went down, but overall, I guess if I had very hot dice, that's probably, and that's probably the one of the key lessons coming out of that. When you put the party up against something that's much more dangerous than they would on paper be able to handle, where it comes down to is if your dice are a little hot, you can probably get into a lot of trouble, but it turned out my dice weren't that hot, except on that one attack. And I also think the cliffhanger ending, it's always a good one, and it really resonated. I think the, certainly, Calda was engaged to understand or be excited that we were going to be addressing this particular mystery within the storyline. And that was something that, of course, I couldn't plan for because I had no idea that Calda was going to get uh, badly injured and be forced to go against the gates of death. And it will set up a lot of what has to happen in the beginning of the next session. What didn't work so well was the goblin fight. It was very lackluster. I had hoped to give the goblins a lot more personality. Maybe they could hear them chittering. And I'll be honest, in the moment, I just wasn't feeling it. It... I, I don't know why I wasn't up for doing some squirrely goblin voice. I couldn't think of anything that I could say in the moment that would be funny because that's what I'd be shooting for, getting a laugh. In the end, I just played it straight. And I, again, in D&D, at low levels, I don't think there's anything more cliche than a goblin ambush. But hey, it's, it's what played out. They got to really, you know, kill a bunch of them. I don't think from the player's standpoint, it felt like a, a lackluster encounter. And I'm not saying saying it because the PCs won so easily. I'm just saying it because there wasn't anything special about it that, that helped it to, to stand out. I, I now have a very interesting challenge ahead of me if Calda actually dies. Because the pursuit of the Balnexicon is really his pursuit. The party's going along, but no one else really cares about the Balnexicon, at least not yet, other than that, hey, called us in our party and he wants to go after the Balnexicon. We're not really digging on Outpost 9 and what's happening here right now, so what the hell, I guess we'll go pursue this. That sounds like an adventure. But if he, he actually dies, this has exposed a weakness in in the the logic of the the campaign. It's fine because, of course, you know, I'll do that DM thing and do what I have to do should that occur to to either have the party continue down that path or give them options where they can continue down a, a separate path. But uh, the game will go on. It just was interesting to kind of scratch my head and go, oh gosh, I've really set this up where it is hinging on one player's motivation for this to make logical sense. Lessons learned. There was a moment in the last session that got me thinking about a broader concern, which is not a function of what happened in my session, but it's something that I see come up all the time from different dungeon masters who are having problems in their campaigns and dealing with the specific challenge of players who are acting badly and explaining it as a function of 
something that their character would do. They exonerate themselves from any responsibility based on the fact that the predetermined nature of their character indicates that they would take these actions, even if they are unpalatable to others. The litmus test for if this is actual role-playing behavior or if it's just someone acting selfishly as often, is everyone else having fun with this? Is everyone at the table, are they finding it enjoyable or are they at least not really being irritated by it? How much time does it take up from everyone's game session to deal with the strange antics? The incident in my campaign session was the wizard Calda when it was their turn to take watch before they entered the Swamplands. Grayson decided to give their character, I think it was a wisdom saving throw. And that that saving throw would determine if he would have the willpower or the discipline to actually stay up and take his watch, or if he would in fact fall asleep on his watch. And he failed a saving throw and his character fell asleep, and when everyone woke up in the morning, they uh, they found Calda asleep. And so rightfully, the, the characters blamed Calda, and they gave him a stern talking to. It was a, a scene where specifically Bren, the half-orc, was able to give the spoiled tiefling wizard his comeuppance. What's interesting about this to me is clearly Grayson was creating a scene for everyone at the table. How he chose to handle it, how he chose to make it a... He, he kind of took over and almost was the dungeon master for a moment. He was the DM for his character and saying, I have this weakness. This is a situation where he's it's leaning in... That situation's leaning into that weakness and therefore I'm going to give him a saving throw. And if he fails it, He's going to do a bad thing. Like I said, created a scene for everyone at the, the table to, I won't say enjoy, but certainly um, amuse themselves with for a few moments. And it further, I think, solidified the wizard's place in the party, as well as give others a chance to react to it. I think the, the new renaissance of this hobby is a function of, often of people coming to the game through things like Critical Role and other streaming experiences where story is first, foremost, and in some cases the whole thing. There's a higher propensity for long stretches of time with no rolling going on, if not entire sessions. And that's okay. I think that that's kind of, it comes from a more improvisational school of thought. It comes from building scenes, drama, and tension as a function of how these characters play together. Going back to my main point, though, this whole thing, as I thought about how Grayson did this, it got me thinking of, well, are there instances where these things don't work out so well? And certainly there are, and I hear about it all the time, that there are folks who will use that mantra of, this is what my character would do, but they use it selfishly and for themselves alone. They commit crimes in the game. They take things from other players. They, they do things that I think force the other players to not play their character in order to maintain party cohesion. When you decide as a player that I'm going to take some action, there need to generally be consequences for that action. When the thing you're doing really is only in opposition to other players, such as saying, you know what, I'm not going to stay awake for my watch. You do have to think that through. What would be the response, potentially, of these other characters, these other characters in the story that I'm telling? And realistically, would, it, would what I'm doing cause a reaction that's so far 
on the opposite end of the cohesion spectrum, that the party would potentially fall apart. And that seems to be the heart of the issue when I see it develop into a real problem or when I hear about it developing into a problem, where the outcome is not that the half-orc fighter is going to get all gravelly voiced and, and give your wizard character a, a talking to, right? It's going to be, well, one person says, I'm a thief, I would pickpocket this character and I would take that magic item that they just were able to acquire. Absolutely. Okay. Well, if you get find, found out, what happens? You kind of force everyone into a, into a bad spot. It would basically come into direct party physical confrontation. And what happens is the player chooses not to do that, right? They'll say, you know what? For the good of the group, not the characters in the party, but for the good of us as people at the table playing together, I'm not going to go there. So you, quote unquote, playing your character can put everyone else in a position of not playing their character. I think it's the solve for this, and this kind of came to me looking at the way Grayson had handled the situation with his wizard not taking watch, and how everyone else responded to it and turned it into a scene. It sort of dawned on me that the, the solve, in a lot of ways, needs to be that Everyone at the table, everyone, is one of the storytellers. It's not just the dungeon master. It's the players. Now, they're predominantly responsible for their character, but there needs to come a point when they are forced to step out of their role as, you know, immersing themselves purely in this one character's persona and look at the greater storyline. Is what I'm doing going to help with the party's story? Is what I'm doing going to help with the party cohesion? Is what I'm doing going to allow everyone else to play their characters better and lean towards those things? Is what I'm doing going to set up opportunities for my friends here to also have a good time, right? Now, you don't have to always answer those questions with a resounding yes. It may be, okay, I, I'm going to do this thing and it's not going to be really about anyone else. It may just be about me and that's okay every once in a while. What I think you have to be cautious of is recognizing if I was in their shoes and someone did this to me, how would I respond? How would I want to respond? How would that make me feel? What would be the outcomes of that? Of course, everything I'm saying is kind of fruitless in a way because people who are capable of being selfish and taking actions that make it a horrible game experience for others generally don't have the uh, emotional skills to be able to do what I'm saying to step out of their character. And so I think the most functional piece of advice in this lesson learned section is more like it's on the DM to set the tone for the table and to establish what everyone's roles are, their role as a player and their role as a collaborative storyteller as part of the group. I think a lot of problems that I've, I've heard about and that I've experienced over the years would be solved if at times... They were, the players were more like writers in a writer's room and they were as responsible for the advancement and the portrayal of all the different personalities in the party, as well as achieving something with their own character. Yes, there should be moments where you get to viscerally have thrills that are a function of playing this fictional character you've developed, but also you need to step out of it and be a partner with everyone else at the table as a co-storyteller to help make sure the group comes together to make sure everyone's having fun at the table, to make sure whatever you're doing as a group is to the benefit of everyone else's enjoyment of your time together. This may not be a major revelation for everyone else, but I do think that this framework and focus creates an opportunity to 
correct some of the stuff that I've seen other groups run into, as well as go beyond just correcting problems and maybe even starting to tread into the area of developing a bigger, more potent game. I see it happen on Critical Role, and I've seen it happen in other scenarios, Acquisitions Incorporated, where the players selflessly are doing things with their characters that set up scenes that tee up someone else's moment. And I think when you start seeing yourself doing that, when you can take a moment and be sort of like a co-DM to help build these things within the game and using your character to facilitate that, that's when you're at the truly advanced levels and you're starting to get into improvisation and storytelling and using this game as a means to do that in a way that's masterful. So that's the session. It went pretty well. We had some good stuff happen. We ended on an amazing cliffhanger and it really set up the session to come. In our next audio journal, we're going to be talking about prepping for that session, which has proven to be, I won't say challenging, but it's certainly a very robust prep that's necessary to make that happen. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. So I'm excited to share some of the things I've been, I've been doing to, to get that ready. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing, throwing us a review, or sharing with your other gamer friends. You can follow me on Twitter at AnatomyCamp. Thanks for listening.